Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your guest host today, Linda Bohannon, the president of the Cancer Support Community, standing in for Kim Tebaldo, our CEO, who is currently out. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations, online or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Today's episode is going to focus on a rare cancer, mesothelioma. I've actually had some experience with this type of cancer through my work as an oncology nurse. But many are not many are familiar with it because of its connection to asbestos. And you may have heard it mentioned on varying advertisements, particularly for law firms. We are here today to help you better understand this type of cancer for what it is, the cancer that it is, the treatments that are available, and how you live with mesothelioma. And we have a terrific expert with us today just to help us uh, do just that. Dr. Rupesh could Kotecha, <laughs> and you'll have to help me through that when we're here, is a board-certified radiation oncologist and the chief of radiosurgery in the Department of Radiation Oncology and director of the Central Nervous System, CNS, metastasis program at Miami Cancer Institute, and that is a mouthful that Dr. Kotecha will help us work through um, all the meanings of that. He has specialized training and experience in utilizing the latest techniques in radiation therapy for both cancer and non-cancer conditions. He also specializes in advanced radiation therapy treatment techniques, including re-irradiation, proton beam radiotherapy, and MR-guided radiation therapy. He's been an invited speaker at numerous national and international symposiums and has published multiple book chapters and over 75 articles in peer-reviewed journals, which is no small feat. Um, These journals include the Journal of Clinical Oncology, the International Journal of Radiation Oncology, Biology, Physics, Cancer, and Practical Radiation Oncology. Dr. Kotecha, thank you so much for um, joining our show. And um, I want to just start the show by helping our listeners understand what are all those things that I just said about you. Tell us a little bit about you and about your your practice. Sure. Thank you for that very kind introduction. And it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, So as was mentioned, my name is Rupesh Kotecha. I'm a radiation oncologist at Miami Cancer Institute in Miami, Florida, which is part of the Baptist Health of Florida Health System. So all of those um, descriptions that you went through were basically um, describing what I get to do on a day-to-day basis, which is exciting for me, which is providing high-precision personalized uh, radiation for patients with cancer. I specialize in treating cancer in the brain and spine or cancer in the thorax, of which mesothelioma, which we're going to talk about today, is one of the rare cancers that we see in the chest. 
Great. Thank you. And I do think it's important to to also mention to uh, our listeners that radiation therapy has come a long way in a, in a pretty short period of time, um, just in terms of how it's delivered and the specificity with which it's delivered and you know the, the, the machines themselves. Either that or I'm just dating well, absolutely. myself. Absolutely. <laughs> No, absolutely. We've we've seen a significant advancement, you know, that's really been borne out by the technology that has really developed, you know, over the last five and ten years. Uh, we are constantly changing. At our cancer center, we actually have basically one of each of the most advanced radiation machines, so we can actually personalize it for every patient that we see. Yes, thank you for that. And I've been in cancer for about almost 40 years now, and I always say this is not your grandparents' cancer treatment anymore. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about today, especially around mesothelioma. Um, but So let's start on mesothelioma by talking about the disease itself. And I know that there are different types of mesothelioma, but and those are anchored typically in the body part where it really starts. So can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So mesothelioma is a rare type of cancer, and it arises from the lining of certain organs. So an analogy that I commonly use with patients is that if they think of organs in their body, such as the heart or the lung, as oranges, especially for us here in Florida, you have the orange itself, and then you have the peel of the orange. Mesothelioma is a cancer that arises from the peel of that orange, So the most commonly affected organs that we see include the lung, the abdominal cavity, and the heart. Mesothelioma lung is far more common, though, than the other types of mesothelioma, and it counts for about 80% of the mesothelioma cases that we see in the clinical practice. Great. And so most of the things that we will talk about today are focused on mesothelioma of the lung. Um, because of the um, incidence rate of that being so high, but we are happy to also address those other um, other areas as we as we move through the the conversation as well. And you know, a lot of people, as I said in the introduction, hear of mesothelioma because of um, attorneys' ads on television or in print materials. And it links directly to asbestos. And can you tell us about, you know, what asbestos is and what that linkage is and how this type of cancer forms because of that? Sure. So asbestos exposure is the most important risk factor associated with the development of mesothelioma. And it's not just the ads that we see here in the United States, but this is a known risk factor around the world. Uh, For example, about 70% of cases of mesothelioma of the lung are connected directly to a past exposure to asbestos. Now, asbestos is actually the commercial name for a group of chemical minerals, and it's used in a variety of industries. You can find it in the cement industry, ceiling and pool tiling, the automobile brake lining industry, and then also in shipbuilding. So whenever we see a patient diagnosed with mesothelioma, we inquire through their history about any exposures, um, especially occupational exposures, to any of these uh, variety of industries. In addition, in a more rare sense, outside of occupational exposure, people can also be exposed to asbestos uh, through natural sources. But again, that's significantly less common. 
do we still, and I, I just, I don't know the answer to this at all. Do we still see the high level of exposure that we did in the past where asbestos was used more common in insulation and other things? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. So in the United States, you know, this is something that we saw beforehand because although asbestos is related directly to the development of mesothelioma, as other cancers, actually, there is a latency period of about 20 to 40 years from the initial exposure to asbestos and the actual development of cancer. Now, if you track the trajectory of asbestos use in the workplace and our incidences of diagnosing mesothelioma, the incidence is supposed to have peaked and stabilized, at least in the United States, between 2015 and 2025. Um, if you actually look at the year-to-year data, though, it actually has remained stable over the last 30 years in the United States specifically. But there are cases that are rising worldwide because of a later recognition in the rest of the world about the connection between asbestos and mesothelioma. And thank you for sharing that, and especially the the 40 to 60-year window. Um, that leads into the next question that, um, that I have for you, and that is, um, you know, people who, who have known to be exposed to asbestos, are we currently recommending to them that they go through any sort of routine screenings like we do now with spiral CAT scans for people who have been long-term smokers? That's a great question. I'd, I'd probably like to break that down into two issues. The, the first is actually the issues related directly to the asbestos exposure. And then second, as you brought up, what about the screening interventions that we have directly for other types of cancer, the most closest association being lung cancer? So first, I think it's important to note that for workers who have, have been exposed to asbestos, these patients are at risk for development of cancer-related issues, which we're specifically speaking about mesothelioma today, but also lung cancer, as well as non-cancer-related issues. So if you look at large population-based studies of people who are exposed to asbestos, about 88% will develop respiratory failure just secondary to the asbestos exposure itself. Hmm. Now, the average asbestos worker is thought to have about a 50% chance of dying from a cancer, and these are most likely lung cancer or a mesothelioma. But if you look at the lifetime risk of developing mesothelioma among asbestos workers individually, uh, the medical literature estimate is about 10%. So, again, low, but still a real number there. Mm -hmm. And if you combine that incidence of developing mesothelioma with the latency of about 30 to 40 years, then it becomes difficult to identify which patients we should intervene with and at what point in the screening process. Now, if you think about the use of spiral low-dose CT scans for patients with lung cancer, I think those patients typically also qualify for screening, even if they have the history of asbestos exposure. So if you think about the factors that we take into consideration to screen a patient for specifically lung cancer, those include age of the patient, smoking history, time since cessation of smoking, cancer history, family history of lung cancer, and then disease histories such as COPD or pulmonary fibrosis, smoking exposure, and then finally occupational exposure. Asbestos is actually a specific agent which counts as an occupational exposure. 
So if you think about this patient population, given the age of these patients, given the potential for comorbidities such as COPD or pulmonary fibrosis, and then that history of occupational exposure, I think a majority of these patients would qualify for low-dose CT scans for cancer screening, although the indication is typically for lung cancer. Now, we do recommend that each patient who has any history of asbestos exposure does follow with their primary care physician to really determine which cancer screening studies they're eligible for. Great. So what I'm hearing in that is to make sure and, and have an open line of communication with your physician, especially when you're talking about your history. Correct. Again, asbestos can lead to development of multiple issues, and some of these actually can qualify for imaging in these patients regardless of the actual concern for mesothelioma. It's a rare disease with a long latency, so it's very difficult to actually specifically just screen for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I understand that. Uh, we are going to take a quick commercial break, and I ask that our listeners don't go away. When we come back, we're going to have a deeper dive into exactly how mesothelioma is diagnosed. And one of the questions that we'll start with is how it differs from a particular lung cancer. So stay tuned right after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you by NovoCure. I am your guest host today, Linda Bohannon, and we are talking about mesothelioma with Dr. Rupesh Kotecha from Miami. And um, we are so happy to have him and so lucky to have him because he is giving us a ton of information on mesothelioma, including how you start to think about um, your communication with your healthcare professional about your history in order to be um, potentially screened. And we are lucky to have him with us from the Miami Cancer Institute in Miami, Florida. He has specialized training in a number of modalities of radiation therapy and works in both um, cancerous condition as well as non-cancerous conditions. And when we left off, we were sort of talking about exposure and, and how people may be screened and Um, I would love for you, before we get into full diagnosis, just quickly give us the difference between a mesothelioma and a lung cancer. Sure. So given the overlap of risk factors for mesothelioma and lung cancer, we have to clearly differentiate which is the cancer that the patient has. Sometimes they can mimic each other just if you consider the imaging alone. So as we talked about earlier, mesothelioma is cancer of the lining of the lung, and it typically encases the lung rather than being a cancer that starts in the lung itself. Now, even under the microscope, there are similarities between the two. However, on further examination, there are specific tests that we can do to differentiate these two diagnoses for the patient as the treatment paradigms are very different. So let's talk about the diagnosis. Walk walk us through what people can expect if they are being diagnosed for mesothelioma. Sure. So whenever we see a patient in the clinic for a new diagnosis, now whether this is mesothelioma or this really applies to any new cancer diagnosis, your physician should take a history from you, review symptoms that you are having, as well as perform a physical examination. For mesothelioma specifically, they may tap on your chest to determine if there's fluid in your lungs, as well as listen to the breath sounds in your chest. They could palpate the chest wall to see if there are any tumor nodules or any other visible areas of disease. Now, there are a number of diagnostic tests that are used in the initial workup of mesothelioma, and depending on the patient's symptoms when they initially present, these typically range from a chest X-ray to a CAT scan and then potentially a PET scan for systemic staging. Now, to confirm a diagnosis of mesothelioma, We need to potentially drain some fluid from the lung that would show cancer cells in the fluid or potentially do a biopsy, which is a procedure to obtain tissue from the lining of the lung. In certain circumstances, if it's not easy to obtain a diagnosis with these procedures, sometimes we actually have to do surgical interventions, typically with video-assisted biopsies, um, to actually pursue the diagnosis. And we always try and do the easiest and least invasive techniques before proceeding to more open intervention in these patients. But for this disease specifically, it's not always easy to make the diagnosis initially. So as a patient, one of the things that we really talk to our patients about is being well-informed on your type of cancer as you go into having treatment decision-making conversations with your physician. So when you think about mesothelioma and all of the information that is now available through the testing that you just reviewed with us, what are the important 
pieces of that for patients to know as they're having a conversation about their diagnosis? Sure. So whenever a patient has had all of this workup, we should be able to determine that stage for that patient. And for mesothelioma, just like any other cancer, the stage is very important because our treatments in the modern era, our care paths, our treatment paradigms are all based on the stage of that patient. Now, for mesothelioma specifically, clinical staging can potentially underestimate the extent of disease, and therefore we typically pursue pathologic staging to obtain a more reliable assessment of the stage of the patient and then determine their candidacy for each of the treatment options. Now, the most widely used cancer staging system in the United States is the American Joint Committee on Cancer, or AJCC, cancer staging system. And this takes into account the patient's tumor, the extent of disease into lymph nodes, which are typically in the center of the chest, and the presence of metastatic disease, which is disease spread outside of the lining of the lung. So if you combine these three categories, you can determine the stage of the patient. Now, for newly diagnosed patients, once we know the stage of the patient, we also need to know if the disease can be resected with surgery. And this helps to drive the rest of the pathway for their overall treatment strategy. So I, I we will get to a point um, where I do want to talk about personalized medicine. Is this is mesothelioma the one of those diseases where personalized medicine is important, and we can do genomic testing or not yet? Well, we haven't gotten to that stage yet for lung cancer. Molecular profiling of the tumor is really critical before embarking on any course of therapy. And we actually have studies now that basically prove that we need to know the molecular profile of a tumor before we initiate any course of treatment. For mesothelioma, unfortunately, because of the rarity and the aggressive nature of the disease, there is no test to date that can really tell us any molecular profiling that would change what we would do. We would use the stage and the fact that the patient has mesothelioma and then basically the type of mesothelioma to then determine what treatment that they would need. So the treatment is personalized for that patient based on their age, based on their comorbidities, based on the extent of their disease, the ability to tolerate radiation, surgery, and chemotherapy. But that is a personalized decision without molecular basis, which is really where we're moving to in other types of cancer treatment. Okay, got it. Thank you. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about how mesothelioma is actually treated. And um, I'll let you go into surgery, radio, you know, those different broad types, but I'd like to drill into those um, a little bit more with you. So can you just sort of just generally, how is mesothelioma treated once you know um, all of the information that you do to personalize it? Sure. So, unfortunately, malignant pleuromesothelioma has a poor prognosis overall with a median survival of about 6 to 18 months, so despite the newer therapeutic interventions in this space. So, really, the easiest way for somebody to understand what the treatment strategy would be for them is if they have a localized disease and they're candidates to receive aggressive multimodal therapy, then we would offer them that course of treatment, which is chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and surgery. And then we have to get the patient through all of that treatment, and then those select patients may have a longer estimated survival. 
But for patients who have incurable disease, sometimes we offer them a palliative surgery to help improve their breathing, radiation therapy in short courses to alleviate symptoms, potentially from chest wall disease, or even chemotherapy to overall slow the burden and growth of the disease. But those are basically the two kind of treatment paradigms. And like I said, I think it starts with that surgery decision and discussion. Great. And I'm just going to clarify a word. So when you say multimodal treatment, you're talking about using different types different types of treatment. And you, you said surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. So different types of treatment um, to treat the cancer versus one in isolation. Correct. So typically for patients with localized disease in which we are going to offer an aggressive approach to try and lengthen a patient's survival, then it requires interventions from multimodal treatments or multiple teams, chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. We all have to work together and sequence it and time it for each patient. Got it. So let's unpack those um, a little bit, and let's start with surgery. So what type of surgeries do um, patients with mesothelioma, mesothelioma receive? Sure. So there are a number of different surgeries that are used. Um, The first surgery is called an EPP, which is when the lining of the lung is respected along with the lung itself and the lining of the heart and the diaphragm, which is the muscle that separates the chest from the abdomen. Now, in some cases, when the heart lining or the diaphragm muscle are not involved, these are potentially left behind the patient. A different type of surgery is when the lining of the lung and all of the tumor is removed but the rest of the tissues and organs, such as the lung, are left intact. There is a less extensive surgery that is gaining more prominence, as well as an in-between surgery in which kind of an uh, in-between those two operations are sometimes performed. Now, the least invasive surgery that would be done would be just a partial resection of the lining of the lung, and this is just used for diagnosis, or even palliative purposes, but that's not a definitive surgery, as we know gross tumor is left behind. It's important to note that the more extensive the surgery, the higher risk of complications, the higher risk of mortality, and therefore patient selection is really key to determine which patient should undergo surgery. Okay. And um, do you, so in a, in a patient um and you, you you broke the patients out by stage of disease, earlier stage, and then more of an incurable disease. Do you do surgery for symptom management to either, I, I've heard the word debulking before. Is that relevant here? That can be used. So we can debulk some areas of, of disease. Sometimes when they're going in to get a biopsy, if they need to do an open intervention, um, Another way we can uh, treat the patient, though, for alleviating symptoms or reducing tumor bulk or burden is to use radiation therapy in short courses, typically between five to 10 treatments, and that can help alleviate symptoms as well. Okay. And when we use the word debulking, we're talking about just shrinking the amount of disease that's there. Correct. Correct. A, A considered curative surgery for mesothelioma would be to remove the tumor and the entire lining of the lung because it could all be affected. And then it's controversial whether you have to remove the lining of other organs as well as if you have to remove the lung itself. That's been controversial. Okay. Thank you. That's great. We appreciate that. And that 
helps explain some of that. We are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other ways in which mesothelioma are treated, primarily radiation therapy, chemotherapy. And as we move through our show today, we're going to get into some novel therapies, which I'm, I'm excited to hear more about. So please stay with us. We will be right back after this break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. 
Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda Bohannon. Today's episode is brought to you by NovoCure. And again, we are lucky to be joined today by radiation oncology, Dr. Kotecha, who's coming to us from Miami, Florida. And we are having an in-depth conversation around mesothelioma. And so far, we have covered sort of the basis of what it is. And we have talked about how it's diagnosed. And now we are making our way through treatment. So we have covered surgery. And you have used the word multimodality, which means a number of different treatments. And the ones I like to talk about next, if you're okay with that, are radiation and chemotherapy. So if you can talk about Let's talk about chemotherapy first, and then we'll get to your sweet spot in the area that you love, which is radiation therapy. And how is chemotherapy a part of a treatment plan for patients with mesothelioma? Sure. So every patient who's diagnosed with mesothelioma will receive chemotherapy as long as they're candidates from a health standpoint. And patients who need multimodal treatment along with surgery or along with radiation therapy Chemotherapy can be used before or after surgery, and in patients who are not going to go to surgery, chemotherapy can be used along with potentially radiation therapy or even chemotherapy combined with some of the novel treatments such as tumor-treating fields. And so chemotherapy is really the backbone of any patient who's diagnosed with mesothelioma. Now, there are a number of new clinical trials that are now exploring beyond chemotherapy alone and adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy, or even investigating just immunotherapy alone in patients with newly diagnosed disease. So stay on that theme for just a second and talk to us about clinical trials. And, you know, we at the cancer support community have a lot of information available for patients who um, are considering a clinical trial, but let's just briefly walk patients through, you know, understanding what a trial is, How do they ask for it if they would be a candidate for a clinical trial? You know, how do they just go about having that conversation with their doctor? That's a great question. You know, one of the um, fortunate uh, benefits about working at our cancer center here in Miami is that we are very strong believers in offering clinical trials to patients and really expanding our clinical trial portfolio. This is a discussion that we have very commonly with patients. Given that mesothelioma is a very rare disease, The current estimate in the United States for this year is just over 3,000 cases to be diagnosed. This is something rare, and if patients want to explore additional treatment options or even next-generation therapies, I think that they should search out or even investigate clinical trial availability in their area. And it's our way to help increase access to care for additional options for newly diagnosed patients, as well as advance our understanding of the disease and also, in my belief, the science and medicine. So whenever a patient is discussing treatment options with their physician, I would always encourage them to explore if clinical trials are available to them based on their disease and stage. Now, not every facility can have every clinical trial, and we often work with other facilities to ensure that patients have every option available to them, even if it's not specifically at our facility. Similarly, we see patients from all over the country for clinical trial options that are unique to our particular cancer center. So I also tell patients, really emphasize with them that benefits of being on a clinical trial really extend beyond their care in the clinic as well. They have access to a research team. They have research coordinators. They have research nurses that are always looking after them 
that they would potentially require frequent monitoring by being on a clinical trial. This is all at an added benefit to the patient. So at our cancer center, we always offer a patient first the opportunity to be on a clinical trial, and if there's not that option, then to provide them with what would be the best treatment as standard of care. Mm-hmm. And, and there are a number of misperceptions still, and we have information on our website to really address each of those. So I would encourage our listeners to go take a look at the website or re- revisit some of the earlier episodes of Frankly Speaking About Cancer and where we have addressed those. And we would be happy to entertain any questions through our helpline. Um, we had talked briefly about genomic testing when we were talking about uh, diagnosing mesothelioma. Now, you had mentioned you had mentioned that there really aren't targets today, but we're still exploring those. When you think about personalized medicine and you know, targeted therapies, immunotherapies, are we testing immunotherapies in patients with mesothelioma? We are. So actually, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an initial analysis presented on about 300 patients who were randomized to receive standard chemotherapy or two immunotherapy agents. All these patients had untreated, unrespectable mesothelioma that was newly diagnosed. And in this trial, we saw some exciting outcomes. The survival for the patients who received standard chemotherapy was 14.1 months, which is what we know from historical data. But in the patients who received the two chemotherapy agents, the survival went up to 18.1 months, potentially four months extra of survival. So we're excited at the potential for offering immunotherapy for patients with mesothelioma, and this may be the changing standard of care regimen for patients. But we have to determine which patients will benefit from immunotherapy, as well as potentially some patients who will need chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Great. And that's ongoing work, which is why clinical trials are so important, because they're going to give us those answers and data like you just quoted. Absolutely. So you are a radiation oncologist, which means that your specialty is radiation therapy and treating cancers with radiation therapy. Talk to us about the, you know, sort of the history of treating mesothelioma with radiation therapy and how that has changed most recently in the, in the last year or two. So radiation therapy has been utilized for patients with mesothelioma for a number of years. It can be used in combination with surgery or even help alleviate symptoms or sites of disease in patients who are not going to surgery. Now, the choice of surgical intervention and the overall stage of the patient, the performance status, and extent of disease really helps us to decide when radiation therapy is needed, how much radiation therapy should be used, and how it should be sequenced with the surgery, with the chemotherapy. And patients who go to surgery, radiation therapy has been shown to improve the control rate of the cancer after surgery alone. And we are currently looking at newer ways of delivering the radiation therapy to make it safer. And specifically, as surgery is becoming less extensive, so for example, if they're no longer taking out the lung itself, we're trying to figure out how can we give radiation specifically to the lining of the lung, but to not cause the patient toxicity by having the lung sitting there in the middle of our radiation therapy field. And this has really been generated by uh, the advancements in technology that we have in radiation oncology to allow us to safely deliver those treatments. And we, sh- we should probably just dig a little bit more um, around the why. So you give radiation therapy after the surgery. 
um, to try to reach any cells that may not have been removed as a part of the surgery, or if you were debulking, oh. removing the size of the cancer, maybe reducing that even more? That's correct. So many times in radiation, just not in mesothelioma space, we use radiation therapy after somebody has had resection. For example, women who have a lumpectomy need radiation therapy afterwards. It helps improve the control rate, survival from cancer. Similarly, in other cancers like rectal cancer or pancreatic cancer, we know this for mesothelioma patients that radiation therapy potentially can help control the disease after, even after a patient has had extensive surgery. Great. Let's talk about something relatively new. I mean, it's been used in, in brain um, cancers, and I'm sure you're very familiar and you've been a pioneer in really bringing it to, to the fore, but tumor treating fields. Let's, let's talk about those, and, and can you explain those to our listeners? Sure. So tumor treating field therapy is something that we have been using for a number of years for a very similar type of tumor when you think about the history, uh, which is glioblastoma. So a brain tumor that I treat, um, which is very aggressive and has had basically no advancements in 15 years despite hundreds and thousands of patients being on clinical trials, if you think about that story, tumor treating fields help extend the survival of patients with this aggressive brain tumor. Interestingly enough, this was also tested in mesothelioma patients, a disease in which up until you know recently we have made no advancements also in the last 15 years with no new FDA-approved therapies. Now, tumor treating fields are not like any of the therapies we've discussed so far on the telephone call. They're not chemotherapy. They're not radiation therapy. They're not surgery. What they are is a portable, non-invasive device that provides local regional treatment. They're delivered by placing the sterile single-use transducer arrays or pads on the patient. Those pads are then connected to a field generator, and that provides this alternating electric field energy. Now, tumor-treating fields are very low intensity. They're between 1 to 3 volts per centimeter, to give an idea. They're intermediate frequency, and they're alternating electric fields that are delivered in directions through the pad. We position these transducers or these pads on the patient, and this is individualized for each patient based on their CT scans, based on the extent of their disease. We know from studies in the lab that we can actually tune the frequency of these tumor treating fields to the specific cell type and size of the cell to help prevent those specific cells from growing. So, for example, we know for mesothelioma, the optimal frequency is 150 kilohertz. So that's what we will set for those tumor treating fields that we will place on the patient. In fact, in studies that have been done in the lab, Mesothelioma cells are not only sensitive to tumor-treating fields, even if you give them chemotherapy, tumor-treating fields on top of that actually has better activity and results in fewer cells that are surviving. Now, these transducer rays are typically paced on the patient's chest, as I mentioned. They're typically on the front and the back. Potentially, they could be on the sides and the front and the back, and this is all independent. This is personalized for each patient. The electric field itself is actually strongest in the region between the arrays, and then it kind of diminishes in the regions that are not located between the arrays. And again, the size, the location, these are all compatible with the size and anatomy of the patient that we see in the clinic. And essentially, at the end of the day, we make sure that the electric field distribution effectively covers the lung 
to allow for treatment of the mesothelioma for that patient. And again, this is personalized for every single patient. I'm just taking notes for <laughs> my, my delay because I want to spend a little bit more time on this. We would normally break for a, a commercial, but I think we really need to, to, to explore and, and unpack some of the things that you said about this. So chemotherapy, we're used to being injected into a vein, radiation therapy, you know, it's given by machine, you know, onto a, a, onto a map that you've essentially put onto to somebody's body, local therapy. Um, so these, there are special pads that you place on the patient to administer this type of treatment. What actually happens to the cancer cell? Is it, is it, does it break the cell apart so that it dies in that way? What sort of happens inside the body with the uh, tumor treating fields? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have known actually from the biology from uh, glioblastoma as well as from studies that have been done in mesothelioma cells in that if you expose mesothelioma cells to these tumor-treating fields, think of the frequency of these fields as particularly tuned towards that cancer, it reduces the number of viable cells. So it helps reduce the burden of the cancer. It helps kill off the cancer cells. The way I like to explain to patients is it almost pauses the cell. It keeps it in a stasis where that cell cannot divide, cannot grow, and therefore it ends up dying. So it puts the, it really puts the pause on that patient's cancer while they're wearing the device. Now, typically, we recommend that the patient wears the device for about 18 hours a day. Most of this time, they can get by sleeping at night by having the pads on, and then throughout the day as well to add the additional hours. And we know from the glioblastoma literature and studies that the longer the patients wear it, the more that it's able to control the cancer and actually translates to longer that the patients were surviving. Okay. So the natural question would be, you know, when you think about side effects, right, people who have chemotherapy may have certain side effects um, because of the systemic nature of the treatment. And people with radiation therapy may have certain side effects because of the local nature, right? And we always think about skin reactions and skin burns, that sort of thing. So when people have the tumor-treating fields, what type of side effects might they experience with those? Yeah, so actually because tumor-treating field therapy is really superficial, right, the, the transducer arrays are actually placed on the patient's chest, they don't cause the systemic toxicity that, for example, chemotherapy causes. And the side effects are localized to the skin. So in the study that evaluated the role of tumor-treating fields in patients with mesothelioma, the side effects that were related to the treatment, two-thirds of the patients had some mild to moderate skin irritation. And we've seen this in the clinic. We give them skin creams and other skin care regimens and even corticosteroid creams. And very few patients have significant skin issues. In the study that was done, it was actually only 5% of patients. So most of the skin irritations actually resolved after treatment with topical corticosteroids or even a short treatment break. But there were no serious adverse events that were related specifically to the use of tumor treating fields. Hmm. Very interesting. And with that, we are going to take a quick commercial break. So listeners, please stay with us, and we're going to wrap up this show when we come back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. 
But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you by NovoCure, and we have had so much fun talking today about really the the changes that have happened in the uh, treatment of mesothelioma, and it's really uh, remarkable and, and super interesting to hear. So, Dr. Kotecha, thank you so much for being with us today from the Miami Cancer Institute to talk about this. We have about five minutes left to chat, and we were just finishing up a conversation on tumor treating fields and um, really interesting technology around that. And I was wondering, just quickly before we go on to other management, um, if, if that is covered by health insurance or if patients have trouble getting that covered by their health insurance? So tumor treating fields for mesothelioma is actually a very novel new therapy. And so a facility itself has to go through an approval process, um, have a standardized protocol in place for how they are going to treat patients. This is actually from an FDA mandate. Um, and in addition to that, then the insurance coverage is a separate question. Um, now, this can differ based on each of the insurance processes as this is still in flux. And especially when you have a novel therapy like this, there is some time before an insurance does catch up with this. 
there are some resources that are available to patients. There's representation that the, the company can provide. Um, there's information that your physician can provide to the insurance company um, to help allow this to be a treatment option for any newly diagnosed patient. Great. Thank you. And we also have um, financial counselors that can help answer questions that you you might have about that as well. So thank you very much. And you sort of led us right into my next question, which is um, how, how would a patient find a center that would offer expanded treatment for mesothelioma? So, so I think if we um, think about areas or resources um, where a patient with mesothelioma would look, um, you know, you always have uh, cancer support societies, you have the mesothelioma uh, foundations, uh, either national foundations or even local foundations, and it, those can actually help you connect with facilities that specialize in mesothelioma, and that helps you get access to things like clinical trials, but that also can get you access to next-generation therapies, which are FDA-approved, but just not available at all facilities, and so tumor-treating fields kind of falls into that. We've actually worked with a number of other community centers to help connect and provide care for patients um, and allow them to receive, for example, chemotherapy at their facility, and then we would prescribe the tumor-treating field facility uh, therapy at our facility and then help with that patient with their follow-up. Great. Thank you. And, you know, one of the things that we should probably reassure people um, about is that when you have a, a rare cancer and you go to a center or a center like yours that is willing to work with community-based centers, that there's a large team of, of people around them that are, that are willing to help think about their care, talk them through their care, and support them through their care. Yeah, absolutely. This differs at each facility. You know, at our facility, each patient is assigned a nurse navigator, a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a pulmonologist, a thoracic surgeon, and really these healthcare professionals interact throughout the patient's care to ensure really optimization of medical status, treatment for their cancer, alleviation of any cancer-related symptoms. And this sometimes also involves other providers, such as cancer rehabilitation medicine providers, uh, palliative medicine physicians, even nutritional consultations as patients with mesothelioma sometimes are deconditioned. So it does take a team of providers to really truly care for each cancer patient. And we all work together to ensure that we are all doing the best and advocating for the patient. Great. And in the minute that we have left, I can't believe we've come to the end of the show already. What final words of advice do you have for someone who may be newly diagnosed with mesothelioma or have someone in their family newly diagnosed? Sure. So I think the only words of advice I would leave for somebody who is newly diagnosed with mesothelioma is to really, you know, do your research and search for options. Get seen at a medical center by physicians who have experience in treating mesothelioma. As we have mentioned, it's very rare. And you have to be seen at a facility with um, physicians that are experienced at a center that sees a high volume of cases. And therefore, all of these discussions and decisions can be made in a multidisciplinary fashion with radiation oncologists, pulmonologists, thoracic surgeons, and medical oncologists. And then finally, never stop giving up. Always explore new treatment options, either the cancer center in which you're newly diagnosed or another cancer center where you can potentially go to that may offer alternative treatment options, new techniques, next-generation therapies, or even new clinical trials. Great. Thank you so much for joining us and for spending so much time sharing with us valuable information. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. And I just want to remind you that if you've heard something here today and you want additional information, you can either go to our website, which is cancersupportcommunity.org, or just pick up the phone and call one of our navigators. That telephone number is 888 793 9355 and we will be happy to help you in any way that we possibly can until the next time be well do well live well thank you for joining us for frankly speaking about cancer with your host kim tibaldo we're here for you every tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m pacific time and 4 p.m eastern time on the voice america health and wellness network in the meantime stay connected online at cancer that's cancer